My name is Tyler Fornis, and I am one of the co-hosts of the Good, the Bad, and the Hungi AEW podcast here on the Voice of Wrestling Podcasting Network. We take a broad scope approach to the world of all elite wrestling and the entire universe of Tony Khan. We talk about the big matches, the big stars, the promos, the storylines. And we also look at it from a big picture perspective. How are things going to change over the course of the next 10 years with AEW still in the picture? How are companies like WWE going to adapt and adjust to AEW? Are they going to be a similar way like they did with WCW in the late 1990s? Will there be a counterpunch? We talk about all of that and more on the good, the bad, and the hungry every week on the Voices of Wrestling Network. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the 60th ranked podcast in the United Kingdom, the good, the bad, and the hungry on the Voice of Wrestling Podcasting Network. I'm your host, Tyler Fornis, and with me today, as always, is Fred Moreland. Fred, how funny is Ohio State? And Ohio State, uh, you know, to honor our uh, UK fan, and we're going to start by discussing football, just don't ask me which kind. Uh, Ohio State uh, definitely did not have a good weekend. They uh, Michigan is kind of built to win exactly one game every year, and that is the Ohio State game. And they did it. They won the game. They kind of just uh, steamrolled them. And, uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, they may be out of the playoff. I'm not sure. They're kind of on the edge there. It depends on what happens with TCU, I think, but in particular. The playoff is very interesting because we could actually see a two-loss Alabama team that didn't even make the SEC championship game make it into the playoff because of the chaos in front of them. They were postured incredibly well by the playoff committee by being at seven. With And yes, they have two losses and no team has ever made it with two losses. But when they made it a few years ago, no team had ever made it after not even making their conference championship game. Well, Alabama cleared that. They're an institution. They're Alabama. It's going to be very interesting to see how the committee parses that out with Ohio State. Because while Alabama has two losses, he was at three points on a last-second field goal at Tennessee and one point on a two-point conversion in overtime at LSU. At the time, LSU was 12 and Tennessee was five. So you're talking about top 12 teams. And LSU, before their loss to Texas A&M this weekend, had a legit chance to make the playoff if they were to run the gauntlet and then beat Georgia this upcoming Saturday in the SEC championship game. What was interesting for me for Michigan was they were without Blake Corum. Injured his knee against Illinois. Tried to give it a go against Ohio State. Couldn't do it. Donovan Edwards stepped up in a big way. Had two 60-plus yard touchdown runs to seal the game. And it, it was hilarious to watch Ohio State fans just melt. And just, they were like the Wicked Witch of the West on how they just, like, just started melting. Their brains were imploding because Ryan Day couldn't call a play. And it was... It was pretty remarkable, and the entire day Fred of college football was absolutely incredible. Um, Do you get a chance to watch any other games on Saturday? 
I really only watched the Kentucky one, and that was because uh, it was the Louisville rivalry game, which uh, Kentucky just kind of throttled them to a fairly easy win. Um, but I did follow the results through the day, and that was a borderline blood week. Um, just a lot of upsets. Uh, you know, even even if you take off like Michigan beating Ohio State off the board because that was a three over a two. Uh, but I mean, you had a lot LSU eating shit, Clemson eating shit. Um, so many big names lost, and uh, I don't know, that always amuses me. Clemson eating shit was hilarious because one, Dabo sucks. Two, Spencer Rattler, he he's had a struggle of a season, um, with under Shane Beamer after transferring from Oklahoma, but they're eight and four. He threw six touchdowns and 460 yards against Tennessee in a route upset. And then he comes back here, first drive, throws a pick six. Then he figures it out and leads him to that 31 to 30 win. That was really cool. The best game of the day was arguably the last one, the Apple Cup. Oh, yeah. Washington, Washington State. Yeah, it. Which determined who went to the Pac-12 championship game, and the two the two teams that could have got in, depending on the result, were neither of the Washington schools. Mm-hmm. And Washington only loses out via tiebreaker, and Utah gets another shot at, at USC this upcoming Friday night. I will be at a Christmas party, and I will be making sure they have that on, and my wife will yell at me. It will be a good rousing time. <laughs> Uh, did you hear the uh, the relatively big women's basketball news of the week that I saw? Because uh, I know that you know if any sport is as popular as college football as women's hoops. But did, did somebody hire the ghost of Pat Summit to be their head coach? No, there was a okay. So one of the uh, preseason tournaments they were doing this year was in Las Vegas, which apparently was run real uh, allegedly real jakily, uh, not exactly the finest uh, organizational skills on display. But oh the, like a truly appalling thing happened where a player for, I believe, Auburn went up for a rebound, came down, hurt something on her upper body. And that's as specific as things that I saw got. Um, and then because they didn't have paramedics at the arena, she had to lay on the court for 45 minutes before they could get her out of there. 45? 45 fucking minutes. I'm serious. It's uh, It's appalling. <laughs> Regardless of anything, um, I, I've actually written a little bit about women's hoops in the past, uh, so hence me bringing this up. But I saw that story come across uh, Saturday night. And I was just like, this is just gross. So, uh, listen, if you're running an athletic event of any sort, including pro wrestling, make sure you have someone there that can do like emergent care. Because if this, if it wasn't like whatever, I don't know if it was a shoulder, arm injury, or something like that, but whatever injury that she had that required a delay there, if it was like a cardiac event, she probably would have died. I mean, that's that's the first thing that went through my head because we've had enough instance in the fairly, you know, over the past couple of decades of basketball players, men or women having cardiac issues and collapsing during games that like this is a thing that could have happened. And unfortunately, we're fortunately it didn't. But like, Jesus Christ, I heard about that Saturday night. I was just like, my God, that's that's gross. It's really bad. <laughs> it's really bad. Like, I'm laughing because, like, it's just so... The other alternative is just scream the F word for, like, hours, you know? But Like, yeah, it's that, one of those things that you only laugh at because you really have no other reaction. And you're just like, what in the world is going on? Like, yeah. I can understand, oh, we don't have an ambulance there. Like, it's it's basketball. Not having an ambulance there, okay, makes sense. Pro wrestling, no, it doesn't. 
Right. High school def- football, you should probably have an ambulance there. Yes, definitely. Oh, men's or women's basketball, you don't have somebody there. Okay. Have a, any kind of medical professional. Just I think there were tra- the team trainers there, but like I, I still don't fully understand like what happened that caused her to stay there for 45 minutes, but yeah. It must have been a neck or back, and nobody felt comfortable just moving them. I mean, that's the only thing I can think of, but I mean, it never got more specific than that, you know, but yeah, just that's, that's yeah. brutal stuff. Um, I, I feel bad for all those women that had to deal with that and know that nobody cared enough about them to do anything. Yeah. Just awful stuff, but let's try and get in some more positive stuff. How about the Vikings, Fred? The Vikings uh, won a football game on the Thanksgiving days. Oh, let me tell you, I'm not a big fan of necessarily working on the holidays. I did it all last year, but it was all like NBC. And now, oh, the Vikings playing Thanksgiving Day. Guess what? You have to work. I I was um, I was I was pretty happy with that. There was a there's a Harvey Danger song entitled "Sometimes You Have to Work on Christmas." Parentheses sometimes in parentheses. Um, and that is very much the case sometimes. Uh, it's never fun having to work the holidays, but I've done it before. Obviously, you have just last week. But, you know, uh, at least, you know, the Vikings definitely took care of business. Uh, are they good? Like, I'm still not emotionally invested in this team because I've already had my heart broken so many times by just terrible finishes to Viking seasons. Um, listen, you're going to get your heart broken, but enjoy the ride. It's the Vikings. You're going to get your heart broken. That's just how it is. You just don't know how it's going to be broken yet, but you know what it's going to be in the playoffs. And this team feels different. There's an aura around the organization. They have bought into Kirk Cousins. The coaching staff has done a tremendous job. I love where this season is going, but I just know it's going to end bad because it's the Vikings and it always does. But yeah. nine and two is nothing 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 to sh- to laugh at they are a very good football team they just beat a very good football team with three of their top corners out like and andrew booth jr just had surgery today and we'll know how long he's going to be out for but just really weird circumstances on how this team has continued to develop um i think that they could be really good i think they have a chance to win a super bowl but i'm not convinced that they are going to win a super bowl if that makes any sense yeah i don't know it's it's just weird to me it doesn't feel like the team should be a nine and two team but here we are especially after we got just throttled by the cowboys a week ago but you know still this is what's going on so Mm -hmm. i don't know man you're the expert yeah i I am the expert and we still really don't know 100 percent what this team is that is that's kind of where we're at it's it's good, but it's doing. We really don't know. They keep their eight known one score games. They've gotten blown out, and their only two losses by the Eagles and the Giants, where you could, you can see that they just had opportunities and they just kept making mistakes, whether it be play calling, whether it be execution, whether it be failure to making adjustments. Like the issues that they had were easy to point out and they're relatively easy fixes, but they just weren't able to do it for whatever reason. Um, I'm very intrigued to see how this continues to grow and develop. Speaking of being intrigued about how things uh, grow and develop, how about the young bucks trolling CM Punk? 
Listen, I the, the match. That's a transition, baby. The go to sleep popped me like crazy. I thought that was great. And you know what? There's there's a lot of talk about how these guys are all like um big crybabies and how they're just soft and like they're not gonna be able to do business. Look, you know what that match told me? They're gonna do business with CM Punk, baby. Like there's no way you you blatantly mock CM Punk in front of Chicago without there being some kind of payoff down the line. I just I can't see it. Obviously, uh, I could see them doing it just to get heat. I, I, I honestly, I think there's a lot of like, like fourth, four uh, D chess trying to be played with this. I think it was just them trolling just to get the fans mad. That's my dumb take. Yeah, you know what? You could be right, but it just feels like everybody knows there's an absolute ass ton of money to be made with this feud, and not doing it honestly would be a mistake. It would be, but I think there's enough uh, hurt feelings around to not have it happen. So that would again, that's just kind of my stupid guess. Uh, you know, it was a great match. I don't think it was as good as the pay per view one in ring, but I thought it was a very entertaining match. Worked a different style, um, and uh, I mean, we didn't just have the GTS being stolen and then Omega doing the uh, go to sleep taunt. We also had. Uh, the Young Bucks doing a fake botched buckshot lariat, which during the commercial break, which I just saw just out of the corner of my eye, and I was like, is that what I thought it was? And it was. Um, I don't know, man. It's just very, very... I don't think it's petty. I think it's just a lot of people are blowing it up way more than it needs to be blown up. Yeah, it... Look, it's pro wrestling. Enjoy the ride. And speaking yeah. of enjoying the ride, the great Muda has done a great job enjoying his ride. And that will come to an end in pro wrestling Noah on January 22nd of next year. His final match, the opponents are yet to be determined. Now that is like, just his final match is the great Muda, just to be clear. Okay. He's, there's um, still going to be a KG Muda uh, retirement match like a month or two later. Yeah. And he's, he, you know what? Good for him getting the bag and milking this for all. That's worth. right. He's, he's going to be teaming with Darby and Sting. Um, and I would not be surprised here if uh, we see something with the great Ocon. Yeah, they, they were working that pretty hard. Um, I don't know if it's going to be this match, or the Muda retirement one. I assume the Muda, uh, great Muda one, since they did the whole missed angle with Ocon. But yeah. Yeah. It's... Uh, a United Empire uh, versus Starby Sting and Muda match could be very fun. No, it absolutely could be very, very fun. And like this, this whole thing with uh, Muda and um, Okan, I think is really cool because it, it, it's almost like what they tried to do with Randy Orton in WWE, like, but in a much, much better way because Orton did the whole legend killer gimmick. And now Okan took the Mongolian chops from Tenzon and now he's, he's doing a little bit with Muda. I, I think it's really cool to get one of your young up and comers working with some of these older guys and using it to help build their pedigree. And I, I feel like it's going to work because there aren't a lot of people that are sold on Ocon. I know I am. And Fred, I think you are too. Yeah. Yeah. He's very promising, but utilizing him in this way and with these veterans, I think is objectively great. 
it is a fine line considering what the past year or two of Noah has been. <laughs> I would, that would be the only uh, hangup I would have just considering what's been done with the young kids and Noah that were coming up and look like future stars. And then we just had two or three years of actually it's the old men being the best booking in Noah. But yeah, I think uh, this could definitely be beneficial both to Ocon and Darby. Uh, and hopefully they both get something out of it. Absolutely. And let's let's kind of shift our gears back to AEW because there is as much as there's not a lot to talk about, we have a lot of stuff that we are excited to get to. Um MJF had an online exchange with UFC fighter Patty Pimblett. Uh it I did not get a chance to see this, but from what I've heard, Fred, it just seems like this was MJF being MJF. Yeah. I honestly don't know who Patty Pimplet is. That could be a name from fighting baseball for all I know. Uh, because I don't really follow MMA that much. Uh, but yeah, I guess they exchanged some tweets about how uh, one couldn't make it in the other's world and vice versa and so on. And uh, I don't know. I mean, it's the thing that people talked about. I have no real insights on it. Look, it's MJF. He's going to yeah. be a dick online. It is what it is. Um, Dante Martin was injured during the Rampage match, and he was reportedly okay which is honestly a great sign because things did not necessarily look great at the time. And we know that his brother Darius has had two major injuries since top flight joined the company a couple years ago. So hopefully we get to see Dante Martin back in a ring really soon. Yeah. It, uh, I think it's been reported that he's actually okay, but there was some concern. I assume from where he kind of slipped while doing the top rope springboard to the outside. Uh, but when I was watching it, he looked completely fine, actually. So I think it turned out okay. Well, that's always good to hear. Um, speaking of not okay, Cole Cabana um, reportedly, and this is per him, nearly died in the match against Chris Jericho, which honestly could make some sense considering how wonky he looked um, because he was wearing compression stockings instead of normal ones with his wrestling gear. Now, I've never worn compression stockings, and but I know that they can change blood flow. This is very interesting, um, and thank goodness he's okay, but at least we now have some kind of uh, kayfabe rationale as to why it, some of his spots looked a little rougher than they should. Yeah, that might uh, that does explain some things. Uh, compression stockings are usually used to like kind of constrict the... Uh the blood flow in the legs to artificially increase blood pressure and uh, kind of often used uh, if you're pregnant and having issues or also if you're diabetic and having issues. Uh, would not advise uh, using those for any kind of athletic event. And uh, I don't know really how Colcabana got them, but uh, he was wearing them for the match and uh, found, you know, he stumbled backstage afterwards, I think is what he said, and like got to the trainer's room and was like, just felt like hell and uh, they had to carefully like decompress him so he didn't throw a clot or something and die it's just a wild weird story fortunately uh, the the near miss uh, worked out okay so thank goodness he's okay that's really what matters here Um, and we kind of mentioned this last year because uh, Tony Khan brought it up during the the scrum but um, it is reported that full gears buy should come in around all outs were around 140,000 that is about 40% higher than what they were doing in 2019. Um, obviously, you wish it was a little better than than around like that kind of growth. 
considering where you were at the previous year. Obviously, CM Punk was on a heater. He was back from wrestling for the first time in seven years. There are extenuating circumstances. But what is your take on this, Fred? Only being up around 40% from the first event just three years ago. Do you think that's a good number? Do you think it's a disappointing one? I think it was uh, completely fine. Um, nothing to panic about. I actually think, considering how people were talking about the company after All Out, leading up to full gear, including myself at points, that uh, the number is pretty good, considering that you know ticket sales are kind of struggling at some points, and TV ratings have been consistent, but not really moving in any either direction. Um, I think what they ended up with was a very solid number um and i think they should probably be fairly happy with that if not i I wouldn't like throw a party but again i wouldn't like go doom and gloom and tear up my booking plans either so yeah i wish it was a little higher but you're talking about 40 percent growth over the over a three-year span i don't necessarily think that's a bad thing and obviously we know time warner is a really big fan of what AEW is currently bringing to them on the tv side and the pay-per-view side is honestly gravy. Um, they're, it's You'd never want to say no to money, but they drew a million-dollar gate. They drew a lot of money on pay-per-view with 140,000 buys. That number will kind of, as far as official, we'll start seeing over the course of the next three months on what that actual number is, but it, you can't really be super disappointed with it. Oh, it's a solid number and uh, and at least held off uh, shrinkage, which I think uh, is probably the big story out of this, in my opinion. Absolutely. Um, that's really it for news today. There, This is kind of a light week considering Thanksgiving was last weekend. So we're going to talk a lot more big picture stuff. And Fred, One last I, thing. One last yeah. thing I do want to bring up uh, to cut you off Dave Meltzer style. But uh, there was talk that like, I guess people got in their heads that the Engel with Moxley telling Regal to leave was Regal's walk off from the company somehow. I don't know why people thought that, but um, they got the idea that that was somehow his finale. It's not. He signed a three-year deal when he came in for Dave Meltzer, and uh, he's going to stick around for a while, it sounds like. Yeah. um, I can see why people thought it could be a walk off. I initially questioned it because it was the perfect way to do a right off from television where that Moxie tells him to run away and never come back. And Regal does that. You can, it, it's easy to see why there's the path of sure, yeah. being written off TV, but he also said that he would be there for next week for MJF, but that was before the Moxley angle. I don't know if it's a full write off. And obviously the, if he did sign that three year deal, like it was reported, we also heard it was a one year deal, but let's go with the assumptions of three year deal. And we know he has the ties to Triple H and would likely be willing to go back. I I could see either way. And honestly, whatever ends up happening, I'll be, I'm sure I'll be fine with because Regal is great in his role. And while MJF doesn't need a talking head, CM Punk didn't need a Paul Heyman. And right now, Roman Reigns doesn't either. But it works. Yeah. Uh, Bach Winkle didn't need Heaton. Omega didn't need Callus, But it added to the acts. Yep, exactly. Um, Fred, I want um, I want you to give me a number. One, two, or three. All right. Uh, I will go with number one. All right. Fred, let's, uh, let's start by talking about some flaws in AEW's booking. Now, I know 
Um, we've talked in this space quite a bit about the fact that they don't let mid carters lose. And there's, there's something to that. You, you want to keep guys strong and you want to keep them built up, but then you got have guys like Miro who don't appear on television for months at a time. Um, that's a big one. And there, there are plenty of others. What is your biggest gripe as far as AEW's booking? I think one real shortcoming, because I've been thinking about this over the past month or two. Um, one real shortcoming with AEW is, you know, cycling people out works if they're established. But I think there's been some cycling with people that are not fully established, and that's kind of hurt those acts. Um, Miro, you mentioned... Uh, I think one thing that has been very shocking to me and I feel like is a bad idea is getting Daniel Garcia hot, getting him to like what felt like a breakthrough position with that angle with the Jericho Appreciation Society where he teased breaking off and then not only have him just sticking with the group, but then having him reduced to just a background player in the group. Um, it just that felt like a fall down the ladder to me. And he was getting over. I think that angle was probably the best thing they did. Uh, that storyline about if he would leave JS or not was probably the best storyline they had going in this last pay-per-view cycle. And until the conclusion, which was just, oh, he's not leaving. And also he's now just like standing behind 2.0 with Jake Hager. And that's rough. That's, that's a big fall from like, I thought that he could have very easily been pushed to, you know, almost a main event level. And uh, instead they did not. And he does, this happens sometimes with Tony Khan's booking where you have these guys that look hot and then they just kind of disappear for a bit. Um, I would point to uh, Ricky Starks as another example. He, I guess he may have had some health issues uh, leading up to this last pay-per-view that uh, shut him down for a while. But, you know, without announcing that, that, without that being clear, it just felt like that while he was getting ready to get hot as a baby face, they just were like, okay, well, you can go home for a few weeks or just work dark, and that'll be it for you. And that it felt like that really hurt his momentum. Um, so let that, me ask you, let me ask you a conspiracy theory question here, Fred. Okay. Um, so this is kind of a two part. One, I mentioned at the beginning of this segment where Tony Khan doesn't like to have a lot of his mid-carders lose, and they kind of get not necessarily written off from television, but the, he wants to keep them strong. It's one of the reasons why Lance Archer is the big man. He doesn't appear yeah, that's a great often, one too. But he, when he comes back, he he is the murder hawk monster, and he's over. He's intimidating, and you feel like he can win anything because he's won a lot. And two, like like well, I guess the first question is: Do you think that plays a part in Daniel Garcia, where you want to keep him strong and not have him lose, especially considering he lost two out of three falls to Brian Danielson? Um, and then the second part is. Are they trying to keep him fresh because they're expecting a Ring of Honor television deal and he's going to be a focal point in that come the beginning of 2023? Maybe, but the fact is, I think that they're doing almost more harm to him uh, by just having him not even be a factor than they are by having him do a job or two. Um, I don't think he really would have lost anything if he, let's say, lost to Ricky Starks than that... uh, you know, eliminator tournament, or if he did a job to, uh, you know, uh, Brian Danielson again, or, uh, 
you know, any other kind of higher level guy, if like Ishii came in and to give him a little authenticity, a little more authenticity, they had him beat Garcia as part of their um, build to him facing Jericho this past Wednesday. Um, I don't know. It just felt very, I think that, I think that's kind of my biggest gripe with it right now is it's kind of inconsistent with guys that you can't be inconsistent with. I think you could have Danielson or Jericho or, um, you know, guys like that disappear from TV for weeks at a time and come back and they'd be right where they are right now. Uh, one of the top guys in the promotion, but it's that next level where they're kind of transitioning upwards that if they go away for a while and you forget about them, you can lose a lot of momentum. Um, in fact, well, I, one of my biggest concerns right now with, uh, I think the dark order angle with 10 breaking away from them this past Friday on rampage was actually a very good angle. Um, but I also think that my biggest concern now, my, my first thought is, well, let's see if they actually follow up on this or if he's just going to be, you know, slotted at the level with the Butcher and the Blade as a heel that just, you know, occasionally does jobs to people on the way up. Because it feels like that was a great angle that should really heat him up in particular. And I don't know that they'll follow up on it. Yeah, I'm kind of with you. I'm I'm very confused of what, what the rationale is right now with Daniel Garcia, but... I do know Tony Khan has at least earned my trust and faith into knowing that I think this will end up being a good thing, even though it's kind of hard to see right now because it the booking has been so wonky. But he does have the pure championship. We we will talk a little bit about um, Ringer, Ring of Honor's final battle, which is AEW adjacent. And we do only have one match announced for it so far, but I assume we'll be getting some more uh, this Wednesday on Dynamite and Friday on Rampage, and then also next Wednesday and Friday as well. Yeah, well, there's only two weeks, so better get moving. No, then if, up we, on us. if we can learn anything from this, uh, uh, how Tony Khan has previously booked this company, we're probably looking at a six or seven match main card and one or two matches on the on the buy-in. Yep, probably around there. So. Yeah, and it, it's it should be pretty good. But um, is there any other like I don't necessarily have any major booking gripes per se, but I think one thing we need to talk about is MJF. Um, I, we didn't talk a ton about it last week because we were so focused on the angle. We we're so focused on all of full gear. Do you think it was the right move giving him the belt, or do you think that they should have really drawn this story out? They did a great job telling the long Hangman Page story. Tony Khan likes elongated storylines. I mean, Kenta Kobashi didn't win his first triple count title for six years. Like, and it feels like Tony Khan is of that same mindset, but we're also living in a different world than we were in the early nineties. Where do you sit on the fence, Fred? I think that you could have told a very interesting story. If MJF failed and did not win the title for two or three more years at a minimum, I think that, you know, that could have led to him getting more over actually, but, I don't know that it's mis. I, it's it's a difference between it's an interesting alternative scenario that you could go down uh, versus it's booking malpractice. And I definitely don't think it was booking malpractice to have him win the belt. It makes a lot of sense because he's probably the most over, the, probably the hottest guy in the company right now, if not the most over. Uh, crowds, I mean, he's turned babyface unwillingly. The crowds are super into him right now, so him turning and being the uh, folk, uh, central point of the TV show moving forward, I think is makes a lot of sense. 
And I think that's very logical. And, uh, you know, I don't think that there's ever really, you know, most of the time it's ever a bad thing to put your world championship on your, on your hottest guy. And I'm kind of with that. I think giving the title to MJF and doing the story with Regal and, we obviously don't know how it's going to play out, so we can only hypothesize. Let's hypothesize that it is a good story, like almost like the majority of main event stories in AEW have been. It's really hard to argue that they shouldn't have tried to, or they shouldn't have put the title on MJF. He's hot as absolute hell right now. Yeah. You, you also have Wardlow, who's still in the mid card. What if they build up Wardlow and he takes the title away from him in a year, year and a half? Because you can. Uh, I feel like you can assume MJF's holding that belt for a long time. I then would you, hope so. You still have matches like, like you don't necessarily want Kenny Omega to lose, but Kenny Omega, let's say he gets a title shot at double or nothing. Well, boom. Like there's, there's a huge drawing match for you. You could have MJF like forbidden door go up against some new Japan guy. And then that that'll create an interesting style of dynamics. Like, there's a lot you can do with this run, and then eventually somebody, some big baby face is taking that belt home. And I would not be shocked in a, in about 18 months if we're talking about Wardlow as the next AEW champion. We're obviously putting the forest before the trees here, but it it, it would make sense considering what their story arc has been over the course of the the entire course of the company's history. And Wardlow is even though his push got kind of stalled, which is something we probably could have talked about when we were Yeah, that's another guy I would Yeah. He is a massive star with this fan base, and he's improving in ring, and you could have him do a match with a guy like MJF and do a longer match, because as much as he feels like he's got that Goldberg kind of heat, where it's just super organic, they love him, he's just a badass, but he doesn't really do a lot of, like, connective tissue in-ring work as of yet you have a lot more potential with him as an in-ring worker than you ever did Goldberg and I think by the time you're looking at 18 months I think you can get a really really good 20-25 minute pay-per-view main event match out of him and MJF and I think it could be really good with both of their stories I think so too um that would be very interesting to see I think that they need to do some stuff to get Wardlow going first. I definitely want to position him as a like first real major pay-per-view challenger. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's a viable option for sure. Uh, I do think that, you know, it's pretty obvious that Wardlow has cooled off some over the past few months, ever since he won the TNT title. Um, rough 2022 for that belt. Uh, but, you know, uh, I think they can also probably heat him back up. Yeah, I, I really think they can. And the nice part is we're talking, we're projecting out almost two years worth of booking here. And there is nothing imminent. Like Wardlow is not challenging for the title at Revolution. It Doing that would be incredibly stupid for both parties considering one, their stories, and two, the push Wardlow is currently getting. It doesn't make sense to derail it. Like obviously you have to have somebody lose, but I, I just don't think it's Wardlow's time. It's This company is... Very interesting in how they book so much long-term stuff, but sometimes the short-term stuff can get a little, a little weird. Yeah. Um, I'm very intrigued to see how this continues to go. Um, Fred, do you have anything more on um, kind of flaws in AEW's booking before we move on to our next topic? 
Another thing I would complain about or point at as a shortcoming sometimes is talent utilization. I feel like, especially in the women's division, you see this where you probably aren't using the right talent in the right spot. Uh, For example, I don't know. I kind of like Nyla Rose. We talked about this before. Uh, I think she was absolutely the wrong opponent for Jade Cargill. Uh, And I think the angle and storyline and the um, pay-per-view match kind of bore that out. But, you know, you have access to, like, Riho, who really excels at, you know, working against bigger opponents, and uh, Karoshida, and, um, you know, all these other uh, Japanese stars, and you really aren't using any of them in any kind of featured role. Um, Although, I guess they are starting to do something with Shida against the Bunny and Penelope Ford. Uh, But to not use any of them against uh, Jade Cargill just doesn't make much sense to me. But I, they kind of—I mean, it's a little different than my first complaint. But you know, I just feel like sometimes it's kind of curious who gets pushed and who doesn't. But I think I guess that's just with any Booker. Yeah, no, no Booker is perfect. Um, I will say that I will we I will correct myself because I said a couple weeks ago, Jade Cargill really hasn't had any good working opponents. She did work with Sheeta and Thunder Rosa. Um, so for a I, I, bit. I will, I will for, take for a in, short period. I will take a little bit of an L on that, but it we were, we're not. To, I was talking like more major programs. She didn't really do. Yeah, it was that either. wasn't a long promo program, and it felt like for in comparison, I think that neither Rose program went on for about seven years. Um, I mean, that's just how it felt. So I wouldn't compare the uh, the two really. I would say that she was not working with uh, Rosa or Sheeta for nearly as long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. I think they could do a lot better job utilizing the women's division. Obviously, we don't know the why behind why Emmy Soccer hasn't been used, but it feels like a really big missed opportunity not utilizing her on television. Yeah, I mean, she's you know she's solid as hell. She's a good trainer just from all the names linked to her over in Japan. Um, I think that she could do a world of good for someone like Cargill, um, and to not link them up uh, is kind of odd to me. And like I, I would personally be using her as in the Madison Rain spot. You know, I think she'd at least be more entertaining on TV than Rain is, but that's just my opinion. Yeah, anybody would be better than Madison Rain, although she is a she is a uh, very attractive individual. There are some, there are definitely worse workers than uh, her. I will say that. Yeah. All right. Let's let's move on to our next one, Fred. Two or three. Uh, let's just keep it going. Let's do two. Preview of Wrestling Observer Awards. Now, this is something, Fred, you are inherently familiar with because you have done a lot of research and um, data collecting as far as Observer Awards and putting together some really inc- incredible sets of data that kind of show. Um, I, I, are you? I can't remember how you how you structure it, but you kind of like like take history of like their. Uh, their award. I'm just going to let you describe it because I'm just going to butcher it. <laughs> okay, sure. Uh, for some of the major uh, Observer Award uh, in the past, I have done a, and I'm trying to keep it updated every year. I've done a, uh, I've adapted a thing from sports called MVP Awards, where you take the percentage of the possible points earned each year in uh, the MVP voting for a sport, and then you do that, add that up to get, add that up. And over the career of these people and compare it 
And that's a pretty good way to compare people across uh, across uh, time. Um, for example, if you use that for the NBA, um, for the MVP voting, your top 10 are LeBron James, Michael Jordan, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Bill Russell, Shaq, Carl Malone, Tim Duncan, and Kobe Bryant. And that is a perfectly acceptable top 10 NBA players of all time list. If you go baseball, it's like Barry Bonds, Dan Musial, Albert Pujols, Ted Williams, and Willie Mays in the top five. And again, that's like, if you told someone that was your top five baseball players all time, I don't think you'd get much pushback uh, from most people. So I've started applying that to the uh, Observer Awards. And uh, I think about them a lot because I'm that kind of nerd. And... Um, you know, I've already been thinking about them for this coming year, trying to figure out who would win the biggest award. So let's uh, kind of just focus on uh, what I what I personally consider the uh, five biggest uh, awards on the wrestling side of things, because there's some MMA ones, and it's well established that I just don't keep up with modern MMA at all. Uh, first of all, there's the Wrestler of the Year Award, or the Luthez Ric Flair, which is basically the MVP award. Uh, that's supposed to incorporate uh, not just in-ring ability and, like, mic skills, but also your drawing power and your importance to a promotion. So I've been thinking about this award in particular, and I think there's probably three realistic candidates this year, um, which are John Moxley, uh, Roman Reigns, and I think Kazuchiko Okada. Um, I feel like it's less of a clear, um, clear year for a new Japan contender because it doesn't feel like a super hot year, but Okada has been on top for, um, most of the year. And I feel, well, Jay White has also held it for half the year, but Okada won the G1 and he's kind of, he's still pushed as like the top guy in the company. So I think he's the Japanese candidate this year. Uh, Moxley is a great contender, in my opinion, because he's had a very good in-ring year, like top five, probably, and also has been instrumental to AEW success, has uh, picked up the load several times when it got dropped because of injury or other issues. And then there's Roman Reigns, who has been easily the heaviest push guy in WWE all year long. They're the number one company in the world, financially. And uh, the easy connection, if you're the number one guy in the number one financial company, you should at least get a strong look at, uh, be looked at strongly for this award. So let me ask you this about Roman Reigns quick, Fred, because obviously he's the number one guy that they're pushing. But how much can you actually attribute the success of WWE to Roman Reigns? And is it like, I think that's going to be the biggest question because it feels like WWE the entity itself is what's selling tickets and it is not individual performers. Well, that's kind of been the big thing with that company for at least 10, 15 years now, right? Mm -hmm. Is who is actually a draw in this company. I think you could go back to John Cena and look at the numbers once he left and how they dipped. And you could say he was something of a draw for the company. I think when Roman Reigns has gone away, there really hasn't been that big of an indication that he's a major draw for the company. Uh, but also, if you look at it, he's over big in the arenas. He's the hottest act they have. So the way WWE is structured these days, you know, they don't rely on pay-per-view. Um, most of their money comes from a set deal with, uh, you know, NBC and Fox, 
where they're they're guaranteed a certain amount of money a year with you know without any kind of like you must hit this rating level to get this much money kind of deal built into it. Um, they've been steady this year after what felt like several years of the TV ratings dropping. Uh, in fact, the first article I wrote for Voices was back in 2020, which was a look at why WWE ratings kept dropping year over year. And they aren't doing that anymore. They aren't going up, but with the way the cable, you know, plug pulling has, uh, you know, cord cutting, I should say, uh, has been going on, uh, I think that's kind of a victory. You know, you have to, in this modern day, if you stay solid over a year, that's practically a moderate gain, mild to moderate gain. Um, so, but there's no answer to this argument. It's just, does he draw money? Well, can't really point to anything direct, but he probably does. But again, you don't have actual evidence to support this argument really strongly, I don't think. No, I, I don't think there there's a ton of it. But then again, I also have indulged in the numbers. I think kind of when I look at this, it feels like Moxley should be the runaway guy because of, as you kind of said, like well, he, picked up, he picked up the ball for AEW on a couple of occasions due to, hey, CM Punk broke his foot. Hey, CM Punk went absolute ape shit at a press conference. Um, and then it's not just that. He's gone off and had one-off matches with a lot of really cool people. Speedball Mike Bailey uh, is among them. Um, he had a great match at GCW against Nick Gage, who is basically a statue at this point. Um, and he's been the guy, and he's got that aura around him. And he's been trusted in a lot of massive spots like that. That's CM Punk that brawl out that could have potentially ruined the company. Like, oh, yeah. obviously, it's a little bit of hyperbole, but it's also not not all that crazy because when big things happen, like everybody kind of points to um, Tony Schiavone, that'll put the butts in the seats for kind of turning the tide in the Monday Night War because it sent everybody else to see Mick Foley win the world title for the first time. There's it's usually one event that ends up being the catalyst to shift momentum. And if they didn't keep the thing on track, that could have been a major disaster for the future of this company. And Moxley was the one who was trusted to write the ship. And he did a fantastic job of that. And I think for when you encompass everything he's done this year, as great as Okada has been as great as Roman Reigns has been, even though his in-ring work, I don't think is nearly at the level of the other two. Nope. But as a spectacle, you could argue he's bigger. But that's not what we're talking about here. I think you have to give it to John Moxley, and I don't. I don't feel it's particularly close. I agree. There, there is one other person I should mention for the award, which is Will Osprey, who's had an amazing entering mm-hmm. year and has been a push commodity, not at the top of New Japan, but he's been a draw for New Japan and also has been doing stuff over with Rev Pro and coming over a little bit for AEW and other uh, American companies. Um, you know, I, I've also been doing uh, this work where I take the cage match match ratings and I try to adjust them into... Uh, basically a comparison of guys' years across 2022. And Osprey has been basically a breakaway candidate in that with Mike Bailey um, for that award, uh, for the, or at least for that stat. Um, so he's an interesting candidate for this, but that would be much more on work in the ring than uh, actual drawing power, I think. I think Moxley is the best of both worlds. 
And I, I, I personally don't see a really good argument against him winning it this year. Yeah, it's it, it feels like this is just the John Moxley year. We've we've seen plenty of instances over the course of the last decade where it's just like, oh, no, it's this guy's year. Oh, it's that guy's year. And this feels like the year of John Moxley. And uh, that would make him one of the relatively few people to win multiple of these awards. Uh, and if you're into the uh, Hall of Fame voting, which uh, Voices of Wrestling in general and myself in particular look at a lot, like that's a very small group that he would be entering. It'd be like Harley Race, Ric Flair, um, Tanahashi, Okada. Tanahashi, I think. Yeah, Tanahashi did three times. AJ Styles, Okada. Actually, Okada's only won once, if you can believe that. Um, that does Kobashi. Yeah, uh, Okada got 2017, and then it was uh, Omega, Jericho, Moxley, and Omega again. So Omega and Jericho are also multiple-time winners. But how many times has Akira Tawe won it? Uh, he has not won any, I'm afraid to say. Uh, what a shame. What a shame for Tawe. Um, let, let's let's kind of continue. Um, one that I really want to look at is um, not the Flair Fez, but um, the most outstanding wrestler. Because I think as far as AEW candidates are concerned, this is one that's very interesting. Um, when it, Now, let's refresh, refresh our memories here, Fred. When it talks to the most outstanding wrestler, are you talking an entire body of work, including multi-man matches, including tag matches, or are you just talking as a singles competitor? Or is it, are, we just, are we talking your performance in a ring regardless of type of match? Uh, that's kind of the implication. Um, you know, uh, Dave Belter, when he does these awards and does the Hall of Fame, he likes to leave them kind of open-ended so that he it's less uh, him prescribing who you vote for and more just asking you to establish your own guidelines. But there's definitely no, like, elimination from consideration of things like uh, Battle Royals or, you know, uh, Anarchy in the Arena or what have you. And I think this batch of candidates from the AEW side, um, let's start with the least obvious, but the one that's been beaten over our head the most, and that is Dax Harwood. Um, I don't think he deserves any votes for wrestler of the year, but you can absolutely, absolutely tell that he's trying with how many singles matches that he's been getting on dynamite, like against big names. Um, Do you think what kind of, voting um, power do you think Dax is going to have come the end of the day? I think he's an appealing candidate, especially to a certain segment of people that uh, are anti-modern wrestling, but have convinced themselves that FTR like a return to Ole Anderson or something when they're really not. They just, FTR works a very modern style. They just use a lot of old school moves to do it. And so that's kind of convinced some people that they're actually the second coming of the brain busters or something. Um, FTR is a great team. I'm not trying to say that they are. They just work a different way than they're commonly presented by certain segments of the online uh, fan base. Uh, Dax is also uh, largely liked, I think, which helps him. He's openly campaigning for awards, uh, you know, which take that under consideration how you will. Um. But, I, I mean, he has a strong resume. Now, I mentioned doing the thing with um, with the cage match match ratings uh, and assigning points based off of how they do those. I've also done that with my own personal match ratings because I am 
a giant nerd and I rate every match I watch and I'm currently at like 1200 ratings for the year. And Dax is my number 10. Like, I think he's had a very good year. But honestly, I think he might be hurting FTR's best chance of winning an award, which is the tag team award, because so much of the work they're doing is not tag team stuff. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Um, I, I don't know. I'd have to, like, parse myself out as far as where I think he's at as far as just a, a regular in-ring worker, because... When you talk about the singles matches, I don't think I've had anything above four and a quarter, which I haven't been blown away by a single stuff for the most part. But I will say for his position on the card for where these matches have been happening, you're putting up four and a quarter star matches in the middle of cards. You're not put you're not getting main event pushes as a singles wrestler. You have three incredible matches, one v one tag teams, two with the Briscoes and one with Aussie Open. You had the really good um three-way at forbidden door it's like the tag team resume is excellent they've they've been down to mexico they've been to japan they're going back to japan again for wrestle kingdom they've been to europe they're kind of doing everything so depending on as you kind of said the open-ended criteria for um what wrestler of the year is if you really value the fact that they've been around and they keep going places and they they've arguably had as a tag team three five-star matches this year. Um, and that is obviously up to interpretation. But if anybody gave the two Briscoes and the one um, Aussie Open match, if you gave all three of them five stars, I'm not faulting you for it at all. Tremendous and work. And I gave five to uh, their match with the Young Buck, Young Bucks back on Dynamite in April too. So I, I'll be honest, I forgot about that match. No one talks about it. It's kind of odd how it's forgotten, but it was mm-hmm. the second one of their, you know, they're between the two teams. Um but yeah, I mean, I think that that's, I, I think that they're my pick for tag team of the year at FTR is. Um, now, trios are eligible under tag team of the year, although I don't think Meltzer really specifies that publicly. So will I be won over by Death Triangle or the Elite in a month? I'm not sure. That's a possibility. I don't think either one of those units will be um, getting that award. But probably I not. Will, I will say, Next year, because they obviously want to make a really big push with these trios titles, and the elite were supposed to go on this big run. We right. all know that they were going to establish these belts as the belts in the company, but then brawl out happened, and now they're trying to establish it with this best of seven series, which we're going to talk more about as we after this and we break down dynamite. That I think is going to set the stage for what trios wrestling is supposed to be in America. And how it's supposed to be revered. Because like the Triangle Gate scene in Dragon Gate is very well done. They they take care of those belts. They're not just uh, fodder like they are in New Japan and other companies. They mean something. And yeah. it it's it means something to hold those belts. And I that's obviously what they're trying to do with AEW. And I'm very excited to kind of see how that forms. And but I, I'm with you. I, I just don't think it's gonna be enough to get them tag team of the year this year but next year i think we're gonna have to have very serious conversations about some of these trios and i do think death triangle is a stronger candidate than you might uh initially think because they've been doing stuff all year uh they had several great matches with the best friends um they've had you know now they've had two very strong matches with uh with uh the elite they had the aussie open one on dynamite back in august um 
you know, I just wouldn't rule them out completely, but I probably will not vote for them at this point. Yeah. Um, Talk to I'm, me again in a month, though. <laughs> yeah. Let's continue to move on. Um, we already talked about John Moxley's MVP. What kind of candidacy do you think he has for most outstanding wrestler? Because when you talk about both of these awards, they're completely different criterias and yes. most outstanding wrestler you're, you're talking uh, basically most outstanding is just in ring work. Correct. That is correct. Yes. Yeah. And well, John Moxley's had a tremendous in ring year, but is it up to that level for you? Uh, it is debatable. I have him in my cage match base thing off the public. He is fourth. Now that's a distant fourth behind Osprey. Osprey's up, uh, and then it's Mike Bailey, and then there's a pretty big gap to number three, which is a surprising Kanosuke Takeshita. Um, I personally have Moxley second in my ratings right now, um, and a very close second to Osprey. Um, it's something that I would have to sit down and consider more at the end of the year, but I do think he's a very viable candidate. Yeah, I think so too, but I. I... I don't think there's many guys. I think we could probably talk about Brian Danielson um, as far as being one of those candidates because Danielson has done some tremendous stuff. The best two out of three falls matches with um, Daniel Garcia and Sammy Guevara. Um, the stuff with Wheeler Yuta at the beginning of the year. Um, I think that Danielson has a very unique case as well. Yeah, I do too. Uh, I personally am a Danielson mark. So I can't really separate that from my interpretation of his matches. I'm just going to naturally probably have them higher than most people. Um, I personally have him probably around fifth or fourth right now in my rankings. Uh, but in the cage match open to the public, you know, that one, he is tied for 17th with Momo Watanabe and Zack Sabre Jr. I think he's probably had too many quiet spots this year for him to be like a top of the line candidate. But I also think anyone who votes for him would be pretty reasonably justified in doing so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as far as looking at throughout the rest of the AEW, do you think there's anybody else who has a puncher's chance? Do we see a guy like CM Punk sneak into this conversation? I, I, I will say it's, he has a very limited resume. But yeah, his top-end stuff has been excellent, especially when you consider the Revolution dog collar match. Yeah, I think that uh, you'd have to be a voter very uh, willing to overlook the time he's missed because he has missed a lot of time. By the end of the year, he's going to have missed maybe practically uh, two-thirds of it, you know, almost, uh, with all the, between all the injuries and the suspension and everything. Um, so I don't think he will finish high. Uh, one guy that I do think is being overlooked uh, just because he also wasn't always the most featured guy was Ray Phoenix. I think mm -hmm. he in particular has had a wonderful year. It's not just AEW. He's also had some great matches in triple a, um, you know, all the trio stuff because uh, they have been the backbone of that division all year. Uh, but he had for me, a five-star match with Vikingo uh, in triple mania back in October um, he's also had some great tag matches in AAA, uh, not always with Pinta, interestingly. Uh, but I think he's a guy that you should look at. Um, uh, as much as you, you know, if you want to count him as a AEW guy, because he didn't really sign until recently, Takeshita is another strong name. Uh, I haven't even really gotten into his DDT stuff, and he's a high-level candidate for me. And as far as the public voting, like, he's very high on that stuff. So... Um, in fact, he is second 
or I'm sorry, third behind Mike Bailey and Osprey. So I think he's a guy that uh, should be considered. So let's talk about this for a second, Fred, because you, you talk about how oh, Takesh is a surprising candidate. He's had a wealth of work this year, yeah. and he's he's had a lot of matches. And but a lot of it, them have been middle of the card, like uh, Dax Harwood. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he's ever peaked. Like, you, you talk about a guy like, oh, CM Punk. I He has a five-star match for me this year, Revolution. Seen mm-hmm. a lot of Takeshita matches. I don't think I've given any of them above a 4.5. But I also don't think I've given any of them under a 3.75. He has just been an incredibly consistent and very good worker, no matter where he's been. I went to a match at a brewery in Eden Prairie, Minnesota, about a half hour from where I live, and he wrestled a guy named JDX. It's on Midwest Also Wrestling's YouTube. I recommend you go out and see it, like seek it out. You can see me in the background wearing a Bush Light shirt. It, it's in all its glory. It's great. But the match was great. They, they beat the living shit out of each other. Just chop after chop. And then they started throwing each other around. It was great. I gave that four and a quarter. But do, when you talk about voting for this, your cage match data has him as number three. And that's essentially an average of what what they've been doing, right? Uh, no, he's ranked third overall. No, but like how you do it is you take all their matches and you basically average them out and they get one rating. Not quite. No, uh, you get a certain number of points depending on what your match, your cage match uh, rating is for a certain match. So okay. it, it rewards both high quality work and doing it regularly. Okay. But how do you parse out the fact that he's only like main events at a couple indie shows? I, he's main event. His DDT work Rampage? does a lot for him. His DDT work does a lot for him. Um, okay. Uh, now, like I said, I've only touched the top of the iceberg of his, that work for him this year. But my my top rated match form this year is actually a four and three quarter match I had for him against Lee Morardi at Prestige Wrestling uh, back in June, um, which I thought was fantastic. Those two worked really well together. Um, the thing with Takeshita is he has been a workhorse. He has worked a lot of places, uh, not just AEW and. Uh, um, DDT, but he's also been doing work in PWG. Um, he's also been working all over the indies. Um, and I think that that will help his case if you're paying attention to that stuff. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. And I'm, it's, it's just weird to me. He's uh, like, obviously I don't know the extents of his DDT work this year because he did spend so much time in the States, but I will say, in his time in the States, he's never headlined anything above a one rampage, but that was Junaki Yamadi Kingston. Takeshita felt like a throw in, which I know feels disrespectful, but considering the circumstances, it's really not. It's just kind of the reality of the situation. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but he, he's, he's only really headlined indie shows. So parsing that out is going to be very interesting and understanding how that's going to actually impact your voting. Yeah, and, and of course, this is a uh, in-ring only award, so that's one thing to consider. Yeah, keep in mind. Uh, but like, I know just opening the uh, this is from the data I worked with back at the end of September. Uh, the third highest rated match of the year at that point in time, with uh, at least ten votes, was him against Kazusada Higuchi in uh, DDT, which uh, was at nine point five four. So if you're, oh. that's only behind. Uh, 
Okada and Osprey and one of the FTR Briscoe matches. I assume the first one. Uh, Which yeah, Okada Osprey? Um, G one or I don't have the dates on this on this particular sheet, but it's the one that Meltzer gave five and three quarters. Then that I think that would have been G, the one five. Yeah, I, I assume so as well. Uh, but it's it's way up there. Um, just going through this again. There's a Tetsuya Indo match uh, that has a nine point one zero, which is right was, behind. That was Peter Pan, wasn't it? I think so. Again, like this sheet, the way it's formatted, I don't have what the actual shows are, the dates, okay, uh, just to make it easier for me to work with. But that that's uh, just as a point of comparison. The rating on that is like literally one a hundredth of a point behind the best of two out of three falls. Danielson Garcia one. Okay. Interesting. All right. Um, let's uh, let's move on to our next topic. Unless you have somebody else you want to talk about. Cause no, that's good, talk, I, think. I think we could talk about Omega, but I just don't think it's his level. Too much time out. Too yeah. much time out. Um, last topic before we get into dynamite poise for a breakout 2023. And I think this Fred needs to start with one guy and one guy only, and that is Swerve Strickland. Strickland has not the guy I would have said, but yeah, I think he is a very good candidate. Well, I'm intrigued about hear about the guy you're going to say, but let me tell you, Strickland, the work that they've been doing uh, with him and Keith Lee, winning the tag belts, keeping him occupied, keeping not only just keeping him occupied, he's having he's doing some great in ring ring work, he's doing some great character work. They're setting up for something big for him in a company that desperately needs top heels i think swerve strickland one can be that top heel two i think that they need to set him up for a world title run i don't doesn't that doesn't need to be now doesn't need to be 2023 but in 2024 at the latest you need to give him a run with that belt well in 2023 you can establish him as a guy at that level without him winning it i I don't think they need that much time to establish him at Mm -hmm. that level no I think that you could have him win a feud with uh, Keith Lee that last uh, two or three months and then have him instantly start feuding with insert top baby face here. Maybe Moxley. So he has something to do away from the title picture. Danielson, uh, anyone along those lines, I think would be a great uh, foe for a swerve. But I agree with you. I actually think he is the best candidate as I think about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's just a matter of time with him. I, I do too. I, I don't know his age, but I, I don't think he's a young guy either. I no, want to say he's, he's about 32. He may, I think he's early 30s, which I mean, by wrestling, that's, you know, traditionally that's, yeah, 32 actually. This uh, is where you should start peaking. That's the idea. That's the old advice, which, you know, always varies on the individual level. But I mean, I think that he is peaking. I think he's a, he's a great worker. Um, if you want to keep me going, if you want me to keep going with my uh, goofy personal ratings, like I've got him in the top 20, uh, top 20, okay. top 30 as a worker this year, personally. I will say one of my favorite matches ever is um, Kill Shot versus Dante Fox. The I still haven't watched that. Oh, you believe it? I know oh, I need Fred, to. I know. You need to. It's, I know it's I need not, to. It's not just a, a gore match. It is a great match laced with story um you don't need a ton of background because I, I will say for as much shit as match striker gets he was tremendous calling that match and giving you enough background so you understood without hitting you over the head or making you feel like hey why are you treating me like i'm an idiot because i've followed this promotion to a t like it's yeah. incredibly well it's a three stages of hell match essentially but i can't remember what they call it in lucha underground he, 
Go out of your way. It's, it's I a need great to. watch. I have so much actual wrestling I need to watch. Like just from like this wrestling 101 project, I'm going to put that over on every show that I can because I mm -hmm. love this kind of thing. And this is the kind of thing that I need to help fill in gaps of my knowledge. And a lot of these matches that are coming up on it, I haven't seen. Um, but I, I've the ones I've gone out of my way to watch since they've been posted have all been fantastic. So yeah. Kevin here and Kevin here and Robin Reed have done a phenomenal job. Fantastic One, stuff. Like, What's what really impressed me about the project? You know what? Let's just talk about it because these guys yeah, sure. have done great. They wanted to create a guide to where everybody like there. Here's 101 matches you need to get a great sense of wrestling and wrestling history. And it's not just hey, let's put five Okada matches on there. Oh, we need five from Masawa. No, we, we need like, all the Okada Omega stuff. It's not supposed to be like some. These are the best matches ever. List. It's not a list of every match you need to see before you die. It's a list of matches that you need to see to understand what wrestling is. And they try to split things up and, and utilize matches from different eras, different companies, different regions of the world, and give you a sense of, hey, these are five spectacles you have to see, including like they, they just released it a few weeks ago, Terry Funk and Onita in the explosive barbed wire death match. Which they, I had never watched before. It's a spectacle you need to see yes and and that's that's really their focus they've got stuff coming out um numerous different categories and there are some phenomenal wrestlers who didn't even make the cut because they they had a there were probably i want to say about 10 or 15 matches that are phenomenal matches that didn't end up making it for um x y or z just because there's so many good ones and they they didn't just pick their favorites they crowdsourced they talked to us they in our office. Really like, hard on this. They talked to um, major people in the wrestling sphere to get their opinions on it. They crowdsourced and worked incredibly hard. You can go follow it at wrestling101.com. The wrestling101.com or voicesofwrestling.com. And then there is it's they have their own tab and you can follow along. And and every match will have a link that you can click to go watch it. And I highly recommend that you do because if you love wrestling, this will give you a great sense of what wrestling is in areas that you may, you, if you listen to this podcast, you may only watch AEW and that's great. You love, there's something of wrestling that you love, but you may find a lot more that you love just by watching these cherry picked matches from people that care about this more than nearly anybody else in the world and you will one enjoy yourself two become more knowledgeable and three arguably become a better and stronger wrestling fan from doing so definitely uh like for example one match on this list that i i i have never seen before uh, is actually from i think 1979 if i'm not mistaken uh which was andre the giant versus stan hansen in new japan and uh Ooh. they just if you have you got to watch this man it's just these two just going nuts on each other for about 12 14 minutes and it is you know the matches they recommend off it uh, kind of focus on the big guy aspect of things which makes a lot of sense i mean it's andre the giant when he could actually move and stan hansen who was no small person but it goes on to uh you know the infamous vader stan Han you know and with each match they recommend other matches to watch uh, and one of them with this one is the infamous Vader Hansen one where Vader's eyeball gets popped out. Um, 
And then there's like, they're also like, if you want to watch the WWE version of a big man match, there's Big Show versus Mark Henry uh, from uh, whichever show that was supposed to be, Vengeance 2011. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's a fantastic project. And you could draw other through lines from it too. Like this match in particular, it particularly reminds, reminds me of like these Ishii monster matches where he just beats the hell out of his opponent. You know, you could point it like the Jericho one or uh, other Ishii matches of that style. And it, there's, to me, there's a clear connection to something from 1979 to them, which is very cool. No, it is very cool. And you get to watch a lot of great wrestling. Like, yeah, it's fantastic. If you like wrestling, which, I mean, if you're listening to this, I hope you do, uh, you should go out of your way to watch these matches. Yes, absolutely. And and as stuff kind of comes out, we will, we will talk more and more about it because what uh, Robin and Kevin have done is truly impressive and remarkable in every positive connotation you can think of. Um, but we will talk more about that as it continues to grow. But Fred, we just talked about Swerve Strickland. You had one that you were thinking of that you wanted to talk about for who should, who could be a huge breakout star in 2023. I think it's got to be Ricky Starks this year. I think it's time. I've been beating this drum for a while, but he, he has a connection with the fans right now. It's not as hot as it could be, but it's starting to get hot. If he gets featured, it will get hotter. He's got so much charisma. He just feels like a superstar every time he shows up on screen, even when he's dressed like the mummy. Um, he's a very good worker. I think he can get better. I don't think he's ever going to be like a you know top-level guy like Danielson or whoever, but I think he will still be very, very good. Um I think he's going to be a total star and they just need to give him the opportunity to do it. And it's not a question of like, Oh, we need to develop him some more It's he's got to be put in, in a position to succeed. And I think he could be like a backbone of a company level guy. No, I, you know what? Ricky Starks is a great one though. He ah. just pops every time he's on screen, his facial expressions, whether it be in a backstage promo or in the ring are just top level stuff. He's great at getting sympathy. He's great at being a dick of a heel. He's just wonderful at everything. He's he's a fantastic talent, and I hope that they really push him hard next year. Yeah, I, I really think they could. What I'm very intrigued about, the broken neck that he suffered last year, held him out for only three months, did not need surgery. I wonder how much that could be holding him back from, one, not having gotten that push already, or two, ever getting that push. Yeah, I hope he's not having long-term side effects from that. I hope it's not like a Kurt Angle situation, you know, where he he broke his neck. And the reason he had so many issues afterwards, uh, just in terms of the health of that, is that it, he decided to go with some experimental procedure that I guess did not work as well as they had hoped. Yeah, um, if, if he would have just said, hey, just give me the neck fusion surgery, I'll see y'all in, in a year. Yeah. Then we may be talking about a completely different current angle than what we have, what we were able to get. Um, obviously, no wrestler wants to sit out a full year. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, it could have changed his life completely because we all know about the painkillers and yeah. how he how he he abused them to so he could stay in the ring. Um, just it's it's tough, man. It is. And, and maybe we're in a new era where uh, management, whether it be Tony Khan or Triple H or whoever, is less willing to like let wrestlers do that to themselves just so they can get them back sooner. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, hopefully, I think that the future of wrestling is a lot like the future of sports, where you prioritize long-term health of athletes over like short-term gains from working hurt. Yeah, um, it's it's not worth hurting yourself more so you can stay. But I, I also get it because if somebody else earns your spot, you may never get it back. So yeah, it, it's, it's tough it is that a, way. It's a very weird business. Um, but. Unless you have somebody else that you think could be a huge breakout guy in 2023, I'd like to see um, Top Flight uh, get a real tag team run. But I don't know how much you can trust Darius at this point because he's had two long-term injuries already in the short time they've been with the company. One of those injuries was a car wreck. That's just a freak incident. Uh, I wouldn't chalk that up against him personally. But I could see how you could, you know, or Tony Khan could be gun-shy on him at this point. Uh, boy, they've really, Top Flight is really kind of Wally-pipped uh private party that's something i was thinking about while watching that ftr match um if you're not familiar with wally pip was a player that got replaced by luke Gehrig, who then put on like 2000 straight games of not of consecutive games played in baseball uh just for the or british fans who don't follow baseball <laughs> um but yeah i think that um I think that private party was kind of slotted as like the young athletic tag team that they wanted to feature. And then they were very disappointing early on because they were very far from a finished product. And uh, then I think top flight came in with a similar style, but more polish and they've been easier to push, you know, and it's definitely helped the Dante got to have all that singles experience. And I feel like that they've completely supplanted what uh, maybe they had thought private party was going to be when they signed them in 2019. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of with you. I I want to see some some new blood in the tag team division. I want to see like I I think their hands were a little tied with Swerve and our glory and the acclaimed kind of keeping them tied together at least for the short time. I have no problem doing like hey, we're going to do a series of three matches. Like New Japan does this to death and I yeah. think it works great. Like, oh, Tanahashi and Zack Sabre Jr. are going to wrestle. Oh, cool. Let's do like three or four matches and then beat it to death and don't have them touch again for two years. Or WWE will like yeah. just every feud it feels like in WWE has to be three pay-per-view cycles, which, you know, when it's always that structure, it feels very tired. It works better in AEW because it's not every feud must go three months kind of deal. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see some new blood. I think um, Top Flight would be great. I don't know what Powerhouse Hobbs is going to end up doing. I yeah, would, that's an interesting one because I think he could have a great year too. You know what I would really like to see? And it will never happen. Um, I'd love to see a powerhouse Hobbs and like Brian Cage tag team run. That would be a lot of fun. Just like, and obviously, you know, powerhouse Hobbs sided with Ricky Starks and the whole thing with Team Taz. Like, I, I get it. I, I'm, I'm pulling shit out of my ass here, but just have two big beefy dudes be like be great bases for some of these uh flippy do tag teams and just beat guys up Hobbs that and sounds joe. like fun Hobbs and joe baby as a team um Ooh. as a heel team i think that could has a lot of mileage i think at this point in his career Samoa joe would probably be better from being mainly a tag team guy yeah um, so I, I i think that's a very appealing option um I don't think they'll do it for pretty obvious reasons, but I mean, I think even a Hobbs and JD Drake t- tag team could be Ooh. very fun. It's um, a real shame that JD Drake's never going to be um, 
above a, a, a dark, maybe main event kind of guy because yeah. you could utilize him a lot better. But I, that, there's that only so many spots. That's yeah. And, and he's never going to get one of those spots, unfortunately. And he's way older than you would probably think. Um, in fact, I think he's like 42 or something. Yeah. He's not young, but yeah. Hell tag team run. Like, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, him and Anthony Henry are like a very good tag team. If you've watched any of their indie stuff and those slot right in very nicely as a job team in AEW as they have. Um, but yeah, Hobbs is a very appealing one too. Absolutely. And with that, we are already 80 minutes into our show, Fred. Yeah. Let's talk about dynamite. Yeah, let's talk about the show we're supposed to talk about. <laughs> Dynamite was very interesting this week. Um, we started off, Fred, talking about um, it, we had the the William Regal promo, and it was it was very interesting. Um, yes. What here is my big takeaway from this? I think they they did a really good job focusing on the fact that hey. We don't need MJF for this show. It's not going to draw any freaking ratings anyways. And I don't know if I've seen the ratings yet for this yeah, show. Yeah, with the holiday, I haven't seen them out, I don't think. Yeah. Um, I, I, I thought it was great. Oh, like, you, you don't... He doesn't need to be here. So, um, the actual quote was, Mr. Friedman doesn't have time to come to places like Chicago. MJF is at the moment on the set of a major motion picture. Um, look, who even knows if he's filming right now? But it, yeah. it's a perfect line that is sensical, and it doesn't matter if it's a lie because it's easily believable. Yeah, I mean, it's a nice touch. I think it worked well. Um, and uh, I, I like this angle. I don't think it was like a blow away or anything, but it was very intriguing how it set things up. And it just raises more questions. Are Danielson and Moxley going to turn on each other and finally finish that feud they kind of started that led to BCC? Uh, is uh, Moxley going to go away for a while and finally get a fish with his friend? Um, you know, it's, you know, interesting. I, you know, I like it a lot and um, yeah, it's fun. Yeah. And then Brian Danielson comes out to make sure that Moxley doesn't literally murder William Regal and they kind of tie things back to their dads. And um, Danielson says, because of Regal, I was able to understand my dad's struggles the last 10 years of my dad's life before he passed away, I was able to love him because of this man. Just imagine someone teaching your daughter to love you in spite of your struggles. And that ended up getting Mox to walk up to Regal and look him dead in the eye, face as red as a fire truck. Lordship, I only want one thing from you. I want you to run. Run far away, as far away as you can, and you never come back. Right now, walk and keep on walking. And that's what Regal did. Yep. Uh, there wasn't anything unsurprising or whatever, but uh, as far as like, you know, you wouldn't expect Regal to start swinging in that uh, situation considering everything that his body's gone through and the story they're telling. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I thought this was a very good segment um, and I'm interested to see where it uh, leads to. Did you think it was weird? Um, it felt a little weird, uh, but I think that's just because it's very un WWE like, and this is kind of a unique promo that you don't see elsewhere, uh, or at least haven't seen probably since like the early '90s with yeah. WCW or something. You know, no, um, it feels like a throwback. 
it really does feel like a throwback. And I liked it, but I think what really didn't help is before the commercial break, they kicked it back to Rania Paquette. She starts interviewing Keith Lee and Swerve interrupts. And Lee's like, choose your words wisely, Swerve. And Swerve blocked the camera and just told Lee, let's talk. And then that's when they cut to commercial. And I think that the oddity of that segment really amplified everything that was kind of weird about um, the start of the show. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, it, I really liked the beginning, but it's like, huh? It, it felt like a very odd start to the show, but luckily they were able to figure it out. Yeah, I feel like that and then going straight into what basically was a comedy match with Hager and Orange Cassidy was a weird start to this show. Uh, and I, I've seen a lot of people like go head over heels praising the show. There's a lot of good stuff on the show, but I also thought that it wasn't as coherent of a uh, show as I've seen from them. Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, it, it was very interesting, Fred, and... I'm I'm intrigued to see where it goes from here. Um, let's talk about the the that comedy match that you mentioned because it was very very interesting that that one the match was just wonky and it was built around the hat, which I think is a great use of Hager. Be the hat guy. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of sad that this is maybe the best gimmick of his career. <laughs> you know, head enthusiast. Um, but yeah, I thought this was just an okay match. It was a lot of comedy. It was like a house show match really is what it felt like. Um, mm-hmm. A way for all these guys to see on the show without taking too many bumps. And uh, Orange Cassidy was able to get the win with the orange punch eventually. Um, I mean, it wasn't bad, but it wasn't blow away by any stretch, I don't think. Yeah, I, I don't think it was blow away. I thought it was fine. And obviously this was a blatant blatant setup fred to talk about um the return of the house of black um qt marshall comes down and basically says hey you're giving away title matches i want one and then the lights go black and it's sabu and of course it's not sabu and the house of black just comes in literally beats living shit out of everybody um when they don't have the spooky stuff notice that they got the yeah notice they got the jas out of there real quick before Mm -hmm. that happened uh, oh, but yeah, the, uh, they they came in, they killed best friends in the factory. Like, oh, that's cool. Hey, way to go, guys! And then they got killed by House of Black. So, mm-hmm. listen, I I like House of Black in ring, and I want to see more of them in ring, and because they're they're good, they're ass kickers, they're, they're wonderful, they're they're wonderfully talented, and I think I think that they've been less spooky than they could have been uh, in their time in AEW for the most part. Yeah. Um, what's really interesting is I, I guess not so much interesting but it's freaking awesome Brody King just delivers a spike pile oh yeah oh that was a hell killed of a the security guy just give me more of that like build these guys up for a trio challenge at revolution and then just have them go in either with the elite or death triangle and just have them beat the living shit out of each other that's all I want give me shit kicking with these guys uh, like do the spooky stuff on your own time just be shit kickers. Yeah. It's great. I, I think that them as grumpy goths that want to kick, kick people in the head, I think is perfectly acceptable. And I think that's largely what they've been. Mm-hmm. So. Absolutely. Um, next match, we had Ethan Page against Ricky Starks. And Starks, being the white meat baby face that he is, ha- has his ribs taped up, has his shoulder taped up. 
and Ethan Page. He's gone thought, full DDP. Yeah. I thought this was one of Ethan Page's best matches in the company so far. Um, did some cool stuff. Uh, was a really good power base to Starks. And I, I thought this was a good match. I gave it three and three quarters. Starks gets the win with a couple spears. And now he gets the title match. Winner's coming. I was on the exact opposite end of the spectrum from you and from a lot of people. I thought this match was just very boring. Uh, I thought that the pre-commercial part where it was just largely Ethan Page in control, it felt like it was worked like a 1988 WWF match. Um, just very slow and uh, uninteresting. Um, so I just wasn't into this match at all for whatever reason. I only gave it a one and three quarter stars. I went below average on it. Um, which is saying something, but I thought Ricky Starks uh, kind of pulled it back a little bit with his burst of offense after the break. But for the most part, I just didn't really dig this at all. Yeah, I, I get that. I thought it was good. I liked some of the offense from Ethan Page, but look, Ethan Page is, he's like a 13-year-old that gets gifted a Porsche, and he still hasn't figured out how to drive it because he's yeah. got all the tools. Um, it's... I wish this would have been better, but I thought it was fine. And if like, I get if you didn't like it, but I thought this was the best he'd done. Yeah. Um, but that's really all that we get. Like we get Ricky Sars versus MJF. We get a true uh, baby face heel dynamic for winners coming. Those promos to lead up to that show over the next couple weeks should be tremendous. Yeah. And get ready for that. Um, after the match, uh, we had footage shown from Sunday night where TBS champion Jay Cargill and the baddies came face-to-face with Bow Wow. Yes, the like Mike Bow Wow. Um, Renee Paquette interviewed uh, Cargill and the baddies backstage. Red Velvet is back. Um, and afterwards, Jay said there would be a celebration next week in honor of her re- retrieving the championship. And Smart Mark certainly served papers to Kira Hogan, relieving of her duties as a baddie because she did not live up to her um, end of the bargain. So... It looks like Kira Hogan is completely done with Jade Cargill unless they end up feuding. Yeah, I, I could see that being like the next mini feud for Jade. Um, not exactly hyped about that, but I can see it happening. Uh, I don't get the Bow Wow thing. He last charted in 2011. Um, I mean, I just I don't know why we're spending time on Bow Wow in the year of our Lord 2022, but we are. So I don't know what the payoff's going to be other than maybe him just showing up on a dynamite and just standing around like Big Sean and uh, some of the other ones they've had previously. Ah, Big Sean. Good, good stuff. All right. Um, then we have the best of seven series um, where Death Triangle pulled up their second win to go up 2 nothing over uh, the Elite. Th- this, is w- this match was awesome. We talked about the trolling of CM Punk. But I think the most important thing was the hammer finish. This yeah. was so well constructed. Um, Matt Jackson clocks Pac with a low blow. Rick, and while Rick Knox is distracted, Cutler slides a hammer into Matt. Matt grabs Amber, but Penta was behind him and hits him with his own hammer. And then Pac pins him. Like, yep. The elite tries Death Triangle's move, and Death Triangle is one step ahead of him. Like, I thought this was so well crafted. Now the elite is down two nothing, and I think this is important. Matt Jackson and Kenny Omega have gotten pinned. I think what's going to happen is all six guys are going to gotten pinned once before the seventh match. 
yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they did that. Um, that sounds like the kind of thing that they would think of, and it sounds like a cool idea to me. And then, of course, because it is Tony Khan and he absolutely loves doing it, Ray Phoenix is going to get uh, pinned in the seventh match and the leader going to win the title. So that's just that just seems what it's going to be. Um, after that, Rene Paquette was on stage with a massive announcement saying that um, due to the extent of Thunder Rosa's injuries, AW and Thunder Rosa have reached a mutual agreement. AW management has been forced to ask Thunder Rosa to relinquish the championship. Jamie Hayter is your new official AW Women's World Championship. And they also gave um, Tony Storm retroactively an official women's title reign. So even though she was called an interim that whole time, she is recognized as an official champion. And in kayfabe, I thought this was well-crafted and tremendous. Yeah, uh, this was um, well overdue. I think we've learned that the interim thing doesn't work. It wouldn't surprise me if uh, Tony Khan tries to go back to it because he loves that for whatever reason. But it just, I think it really annoys the wrestlers. I think... There's too many. We've already been burnt by it twice this year with CM Punk uh, being the interim champ and then uh, all that nonsense afterwards. And then, uh, or I guess Moxley being the interim champ because of CM Punk being hurt. And then the Rosa situation. Like, I just think it's a net negative and hopefully that's it for the, that idea. Yeah, I, I, I don't necessarily disagree. Then we had a three-way tag team match. Um Tay Mello and Anna JAS versus Willow Nightingale and Sky Blue versus Women's World Championship Jamie Hayter and Dr. Britt Baker DMD. Um, I thought this was a fine match. I yeah. didn't necessarily think it was anything special. I did think that um, you're they're still planting seeds for Baker to turn on Hayter and that be the big money feud. I don't know when that's coming, but it's coming sooner rather than later. Yeah, it's going to happen, um, and I think that's going to be the big feud of 2023 in the women's division. But I thought this was all right. I think I went two and a half on it. Um, it was a fine little match. Yeah, nothing wrong with it. Yeah, you know, I, I, on paper I expected worse because um, Sky Blue's pretty green, and uh, uh, Anna J and Tate Mello can be very hit and miss. And uh, this turned out better than I expected. And I'll say that. I like that they're giving Sky Blue TV time because she's only 19 years old. Yeah, and, they definitely have something planned with her down the road. And I can see why. I, there are flashes where she looks really good. And she has a good look. She's obviously very young, so she she kind of fits that baby face mold right now. But I think over time, when she starts to um, mature a little bit facially, then then they'll end up turning her heel, and she'll be able to really start use, utilizing some major character work. Right now, she's she's a perfect baby face for this this women's division. Yeah. All right. And then we had um, Renee Paquette backstage with Top Flight and FTR. Um, FTR, hey, you guys impress us. Dante Martin, hey, we've impressed with you guys for years. And Darius, how about you put those ROS World Tag Titles on the line of Rampage? And they agreed. And there we go. Yep. Um, next was the, the acclaimed coming out to the ring with Daddy Ass. Um Daddy ass, uh, remove the bandages from his hands. And as Bowens yells, scissor me, daddy ass. They get erupted, interrupted by Lethal, Sanjay Dutt, and Satnam Singh. And it looks like we're going to get a program with um, that group and Jeff Jarrett versus um, the Acclaimed. And then um, daddy ass at the end, get them off our screen and scissor me. And then that's the end of the segment. It was 
it got accomplished what it needed to. It gave a little bit of comedy to the show. We had some fun. And then Max now we Caster, have a, Max Caster gave a woman a uh, hotel room key in the front row. <laughs> Very much on camera. God. Max Caster, just that they're having the time of their lives. <laughs> just the time of their lives. I don't um, even know what to say to that. But that was a thing I, that happened. I, I, I don't either. Um, you, you would expect something like that from Ric Flair in 1984, but not necessarily Max Caster in 2022. Um, but then we have the main event. In an absolutely tremendous match. Um, the Ocho Chris Jericho beats Tomohiro Ishii, the Stone Pitbull. They beat each other up. And there's oh, yeah. a lot of story with this match because Ishii was a young boy in WAR when Jericho was there. Um, and not only did Ishii beat Chris Jericho's chest up enough where it started bleeding, then uh, when Jericho got the walls of Jericho and then put in the Lion Tamer, Ishii's just trying to escape and he's just screaming in pain. He looks up at Jericho and gives him the finger. Yes, and, and the best one of the best finishes I've ever seen. Holds the finger up and taps with the same hand he's giving him the finger. Fantastic, just, just like the so ultimate good. sign of fuck you. Just awesome stuff. I gave this four and a half. This was one of the reasons why this dynamite is getting so much praise, Fred. It's because it had arguably two four and a half star matches. Yeah, um, to, I went yeah, four and three quarter on this one, so this, I, I get was, the praise. It was great and laced with story. And yeah. then you had Claudio Castagnoli come out after the match because Jericho was approaching Ian Riccoboni. Um, and Claudio clocks him with a right hand. And yeah, that we're doing this our final battle main event. It is. Um, it's been announced. I am uh, not exactly overwhelmed with excitement <laughs> but for this to happen again, but it'll be a good match. So, um, God, I just hope that we we're months past the expiration date on the JAS BCC thing, but we're still going. Yeah. It, we are still going somehow. And um, rampage uh, other than the Dante Martin injury. Like uh, I think the only thing we need to talk about is 10 finally turns on the, the dark order. Uh, I'll say real quick. I really like that opening tag. I thought they worked really well together and I went four stars on it. Um, it had a really good pace. It was a good mesh of their styles. I enjoyed it thoroughly. I thought that was one of the best Rampage matches in quite a while. Uh, but yeah, uh, basically the big story is uh, go to hell. I hope you enjoyed Thanksgiving. You suck. Because we're going to make negative one cry on TV. Uh, by having 10 turn his back on the Dark Order. Possibly join up with Roosh's uh, legally distinct from the Andrade family office uh, group. And uh Yeah. I thought it was a really well done angle. I thought it was a great beat down. I thought it was a well done turn. Uh, him throwing his mask at the child who was very sad was extremely pro wrestling. Kind of reminded me of Ted DiBiase kicking the basketball away from the kid. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was. Um, I thought it was a great angle. No, what it was a great angle and. I, you almost wish that would have been done on Dynamite, but I, I'm glad they like, did it on Rampage because at least it makes Rampage feel kind of big, even though it wasn't exactly top stars. See, I was going to say that, but it doesn't. It feels like this is like a haphazard attempt to try and make Rampage bigger, and you're doing it with ten of the Dark Order when Dark Order is about as cold as they've been since the end of 2019. Yeah, um, Dark Order's not in a great place. Uh, 
I, you know, it's just a real question of what are they going to be going forward? Uh, they feel kind of like a extra finger, <laughs> you know, they just kind of stick out and are there and I'm not sure they're really adding much, but I think the crowd loves them. I think that, you know, someone suggested in the writer slack that basically evil Uno be like gatekeeper of AEW dark, which I think is perfectly acceptable. Um, yeah. I, I then suggested a fat guy division because, you know, fat guys own in wrestling. Yes. Um, but yeah, like I, you know, it's just going to be this. I don't know what, what they're going to do with it. And I, you know, again, I think I may have said this already on this episode, but my first thought after the angle was over was, okay, well, are we actually going to follow up on this or is 10 just going to be in limbo? Cause they don't want him to lose, but they don't want him to beat anyone either. But I guess we'll see. Yeah. Fred, that is, we have been going for almost two hours. That is our show. Yeah. Um, Odie, well, to, Odie has to get in the little comment at the end. Yeah, he he needs to eat. Um, let's wrap up quickly. We obviously talked about final battle. It will be Claudio Castagnoli versus Chris Jericho for the ROH World Championship. Claudio uses he has to he has to join the Jericho Appreciation Society um, next this upcoming Dynamite on the thirtieth of November. Um, MJF will talk Death Triangle versus the Elite Number Three. Which Fred, I will say, I'm very upset that Number Four is not on twelve seven because that is my birthday and uh. I don't get. I don't get Death Triangle versus Elite on my birthday. It's a bunch of crap. Um, I expect Tony Khan to rectify it for me. <laughs> um, Brian Danielson Dear Tony, I am not a crank. <laughs> um, Brian Danielson versus Dax Harwood. Um, Jade Cargill, CBS Championship Celebration, which I assume we will get something with Kira Hogan. Um, Anna Probably. JAS versus Willow Nightingale, kind of stemming from that uh, three-way tag last week. And I would assume we were going to get at least one more match announced for dynamite um what is it yeah possibly um, two yeah um I'll, honestly that is that is our show um make sure you please like subscribe and share um both on youtube or whatever podcast app you're using a five-star review does us tremendous good and will improve our status from the 60th best show in the country of england um you can email us at hungypod at gmail.com our Twitter handle is at GoodBadHungy. Um, my Twitter handle is at the Real Forno, and Fred's is at Flagrant Wrestling, like Ted Turner Wrestling. That's right. Yeah, um, uh, Fred, this was a, a very fun show, and yeah, um, I will say something we have talked about. We are going to be um, starting to kind of do a little wrap up of um, keep tabs on some of the best matches in AEW, and and over the next couple of weeks, we'll start to talk about how our list is shaping up as we start to get enough matches to really have a, that conversation. Yeah. yeah um, I think it, that'll be fun to do. I think it'll be fun to have a rolling list to kind of see how things are going so we can continuously remember. Cause as, as we were talking, I completely forgot FTR on the bucks wrestled in April. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that was be a very good match. Yeah. I think that'll be a very fun, uh, 2023 project. It absolutely will. And in the meantime, Make sure you you do that, like, subscribe, and review. Follow us on Twitter. Ask us questions in that or the Voice of Wrestling Discord, and we will be sure to answer them every single week. Otherwise, have a wonderful day. Yeah. Uh, have a good week. Thanks for listening, everyone. Skull Vikings.
Hello there, my name's Neil David and I'm the host of Eurograps Express, the podcast exclusively dedicated to the wrestling of Europe. If it's wrestling and it happens in Europe and it's good, we talk about it. Whether it's RevPro, Progress, WXW, Passion Pro, Pro Wrestling Chaos, Pro Wrestling North, we don't care, we talk about them all. If it's good and it's exciting, I want to share it with you. We're on the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network. Check us out on the feed. Check us out on Twitter at EuroGrapsEXP. And join us for chat about European wrestling and a little bit of chat about cheese. Hopefully see you there.